Just a quick heads up that these are adults having adult conversations about things that take place on a show where the adults use a lot of adult language. All this to say, there might be some salty language ahead, so please plan accordingly. Ted Lasso is driving me fucking crazy. Right. He refuses to open up, and when he gets anywhere close to being vulnerable, he fires off a zinger of some obscure reference to something very specific to a 40-year-old white man from middle America. So he's refusing to be vulnerable, right? Sounds like someone I know. Stop it. Me and Coach Lasso are nothing alike. Sharon, you do the same thing. He uses humor to deflect. You use your intelligence. What would Ted Lasso do? That's the question we explore in each episode of this podcast. We take the lessons we learn from Ted Lasso and apply them to the real world through the lens of leadership and positive psychology. My name is Dimple Dabalia. And I'm Jeff Harry. We hope you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed making it, and that it helps you discover your own lasso way and embrace what it means to believe. Okay, welcome to another episode of What Would Ted Lasso Do? Well, first of all, before we jump into that, how are you? I'm just so excited because this episode has so much stuff. I mean, Man City. I was amped for this episode. And I was like, ooh, this is a lengthy episode. So I was excited and also slightly nervous as I thought this is finally, finally when AFC Richmond is recognized by by the world. <laughs> well, so we are we are talking about season two, episode eight, Man City. This one was written by Jamie Lee, and she also wrote um, For the Children in season one. And then it's directed by Matt Lipsy. So yeah, so much stuff packed into this episode. And as you said, it was a longer episode, it clocked in at 45 minutes. And every episode from here on out through the rest of them are all longer now. Um, anywhere from like 42 to up to 49 minutes. So amazing how much they can pack into this little bit of time. So yeah, what came up for you? What themes did you notice? Where should we start? Yeah, well, I have to put it in context of the World Cup, which I don't know when people are listening to this, but the World Cup just ended and it was the greatest World Cup final of all time, or at least in my opinion, it was absolutely amazing. So riding the high of the World Cup, you know, whenever like you watch, whenever I watch the World Cup, then I get so excited and I'm like, oh, I got to play some video games of recreate the experience because you just want to recreate the experience over and over again. So mm -hmm. going into this episode, I was like, oh my gosh, this is AFC Richmond's World Cup. This is the moment. <laughs> so I was amped. I was so excited that it was even called Man City because I'm like, oh, like, I forgot, like, yeah, they get to be in Wembley. Like, there's a lot on the line. So, yeah. So that's how I felt walking into it. That was my feeling. And then, yeah. And then we get to the phone calls from the dad to start off the day. Yeah. So, I mean, it was interesting. It's the first episode where we don't have music opening the episode. It just went right to the the phone ringing, which I thought was. Um, a, like it's a bit jarring like it makes you kind of sit back and be like oh this is different you know 
So for me, a few of the the kind of overarching themes that I saw definitely, you know, we talked about how this season is a lot more about relationships. First season was really about leadership. There was definitely that undercurrent of fathers and sons in this relation. I mean, in this um, episode, a couple other things that came up for me were understanding our influence on others, even though sometimes we're not we don't realize that it's happening. And then the importance of vulnerability for creating connection. And we've kind of touched on this in the past when we've talked about psychological safety, but I thought there were some really beautiful examples in this about that vulnerability. So, you know, and I think this issue of fathers and sons has been kind of in the background for a while, but it really plays out in this episode. And so, yeah, so let's go ahead and start at the beginning. Yeah. So, I mean, it was right on the nose at the beginning, right? So like dad's, you know, Jamie's dad doesn't even, doesn't even call him, right? He's just texting me like, you know, when were these tickets? When do I get these tickets? Right. So then the contrast between that and then uh, Sam's father calls him, you know, says that the oil company is now being, you know, removed from Nigeria. And he was the butterfly that impacted, you know, this. It's huge, like, you know, and then he's, and he has it also on speaker, so everyone can hear that. Yeah, it's fascinating just watching Jamie look at him being like, huh, I wonder what that's like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then just kind of just being like, feeling empty. Yeah, yeah. Sam and his dad are the cutest. Like, I love that relationship. And you can see how much influence his dad has on him. Like we saw, you know, with the, the Dubai Air campaign, as soon as his father, like, told him what was going on and made a real impact to the point of where he had the courage to stand up to say, I can't do this. And so hearing that back and forth, like it was just really, really sweet. And yeah, I can imagine how Jamie felt in that moment when his own relationship with his dad has been so terrible. And we've seen like in the last season, that last episode, we saw like how his dad talked to him and berated him. And even in the episode where the two aces episode where they're all sharing around the fire and like throwing their things in. And he tells us, you know, he talks about how, you know, his initial love for the game, which is what his mom always wanted for him, was replaced when his dad, you know, just came and expected more of him and really just berated him for that all the time. And so, so yeah, so he's got a pretty deep issue with his father. And so to see that contrast, I thought was really well played as well. And all just within that same scene, you know, which was really interesting. It's such a short scene, but so also impactful. And the thing that I found so fascinating about is talk about, talk about momentum, right? Like when things are going good, they're going good, right? Or maybe from a positive psychology standpoint, right? You're priming your mind to see things as going good because they're going good. When they're going bad, they're going bad, like that whole negativity spiral, right? So you go, Sam, you know, shares with his, you know, here's this from his dad. He feels very bold, right? At that point. So he's just like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to finally commit and pick a time and pick a date and be like, I'm going to ask this person out. I'm going to have that, you know, and I'm going to tell them exactly. So like that boldness, you know, expands, like the expansiveness of what's possible, right? When you've just been like, oh my gosh, I just caused a whole oil company to potentially move out of a country. What else could I possibly do? Well, I might as well ask 
the potential love of my life, you know, out. Right. And I'm going to be more bold with that. And then look what happens from there. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, you know, we talk about those upward spirals of positivity instead of the downward spirals. I'm like, we've all experienced those downward spirals where we just like are in that hole and we keep getting deeper and deeper. And to what you're kind of describing is that, you know, whether with gratitude or positive emotion, once we experience it, it broadens our perspective and we continue to just build on that. And so, yeah, it's a great, the broaden and build theory. It's a great one. We can link to it in the, the show notes as well. But that's a really great point. I hadn't really thought about that. But one thing that did come up with me since we're talking about, you know, Jamie and Sam and this relationship with the the fathers, right? So we've got that. And then we've got kind of Roy and his like being a surrogate father of for Phoebe, right? So there's that father and I guess daughter relationship. <laughs> that that was really cute too. Like that how all of that played out. And so I want to, I want to get back to that, but I want to kind of finish this um, Jamie loop because, you know, it's interesting to see Jamie's growth since last season. I think we started talking about that earlier this season that like, even how he was talking to Keely when he came back and how he's like managed with the team and just wanting Roy's approval and wanting Roy to like respect him. Right. And so what I found interesting was like that that Man City game was like all of like a minute, you know, the way that they went through it. So even though it was such a big game, it was the FA Cup. They actually um, shot at Wembley, which I think is really cool. And then, and you see like when, sorry, I know I'm jumping all over the place, but after Jamie has that interaction in the the weight room, he then goes down to talk to Higgins, right? And so we've got that scene with Higgins, who's kind of made, got his makeshift office set up in a closet. I know. It reminds me of office space where the, he just gets, keeps getting moved further and further away, you know, from his red stapler. That actually could be a callback. You never know. Yeah. So, so tell me about that scene. Like what came up for you with that, with uh, that conversation with Higgins? Well, just not just with Higgins, but, you know, just thinking about Jamie and how involved he is now with the team. If you notice the haircut scene, he's there helping to apply the the coat, you know, for when the haircut actually happens. And then he even this one guy's like, I don't get it. I don't understand why this is such a big deal. What's his haircut? Because this guy's like salt bay, but he's like haircut bay now. Like he's doing it in all these like. (laughs) perfectly fancy ways and jamie's like shut up just like just let it be so even now he's voicing the feelings of the team he's speaking for the team so he's already playing more and more of a role with the team more than ever right so people are seeing him as part of the team so then when he goes to the closet and finds higgins First of all, I don't even know how he found Higgins, <laughs> you know, that he was there. And then he asks him, yeah, what do you, you know, what was your relationship with your father? And what did Higgins say? Higgins said something majestic, which I had to highlight. I try to love my dad for who he is and forgive him for who he isn't. And that's really like, whoa, like if everyone could embrace that idea of forgiving, you know, for like, recognizing for who they are and then recognizing what they wouldn't be able to provide you. That would be huge. But I think in Jamie's case, it's so negative that he doesn't see any value that his father brings. 
Jesus, right? And it's almost like just out of obligation, he has to bring Debo and Bug and his father to the game, but he has like really no desire to have them around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought that that was an interesting conversation because, you know, on the one hand, absolutely, I think it has the potential to make you feel less hurt and less stuck in that space if you can recognize, like, this is the good, this is the bad. But I think it's hard, like, especially if you've experienced, like, deep trauma, you know, and in Jamie's case, like there was clearly a lot of verbal abuse for sure, probably a lot of physical abuse. And so, you know, to get to that point of like forgiveness, because there's, I think that recognition of, you know, this is like what he can do and this is what he can't do. I think for me, at least there would be a level of forgiveness involved in there to a degree. And to get to that point, like I think is really really hard and especially if Mm -hmm. you've been through something like that i love the sentiment though because i think at the end of the day we create a lot of our own story loops and we can get out of them if we want to or if we have the capacity to and if we don't like it is what it is but like i think it's also hard because jamie's dad is still there it's not like he can forgive him and he's like gone it's like he's still acting the way he's acting yeah and he's still kind of using jamie or not kind of he definitely is using jamie right you know at the same time he's like talking mess he has such a narcissistic personality reminds me of some other people i know you know such a narcissistic personality and be like bragging like that's my son And also, I'm not cheering for my son. And it's so weird, right? That no wonder Jamie has felt the need to use other people because that's how his father's relationship is with his son. And now he's trying to figure out a new way of having a relationship with his teammates. And that's why I feel like he's much more defensive towards them or defensive for them when his like father's like criticizing them. And it's just like, you're a bunch of amateurs. No offense, no offense. And you're like, clearly there's an offense. Oh, I hate that when people say that. <laughs> clearly there's an offense. Like everything he's saying is, you know, and he's drunk and he snuck like alcohol in. So he's just like such a bad, not just role model, but just like such a bad influence. And now, you know, he has the audacity to walk in and like, beat up not only on Jamie, but beat up on the whole team after they've already lost, like as if it wasn't bad enough, right? So when Jamie finally actually punches his father, I felt like that was a very poignant scene because there's two things I feel are happening. One is he's setting a boundary, which is a good thing. But the other thing was he punched him, which probably his father's done to him and you could feel a certain level of shame in jamie punching his father then his father was like yeah he's just like yeah i know you did that like good you did that like you're more like me and that was a really fascinating um because it was so quiet during time again like no music was happening during all of that yeah so i loved that first of all jamie Set, you know, says like he keeps saying, don't speak to me that way. Well, first of all, to your point about boundaries, like when his dad says, you know, we just want to go to like the, the guys want to go to the pitch and take the pictures. And he says, I'd rather not. I'd rather they not. Uh-huh. And then he says, don't speak to me that way. 
And it made me think about, like, we know that he's been seeing Dr. Sharon, right? Because Keely, like, pointed him to her office. (laughs) And so I feel like without, like, having been in his sessions, we see that he's been doing the work, though, right? Because he is trying to hold the boundary. He is trying to take care of himself. He is trying to protect or stand up for his team. And how humiliating to have something like that happen in front of everybody, right? And he just takes it all as best as he can. And so, yeah, so it really made me think that like the work that he's been doing with her has really been impactful. You know, we see it play out. And then I love uh, when Coach Beard then like grabs him and like pushes him out the door very roughly, you know? And so I feel like that was like the team kind of like waking up because I think everyone was just in shock and stunned at what was happening. And, you know, if you've ever been in a situation like that, it is like one of those things where it takes a minute to react. And so it was nice for, to see Beard kind of react and like step in to help. And then we've got the hug felt around the world. The hug, (laughs) the hug, never saw that coming. Right. It, oh my goodness. Like to your point, it was so quiet in there even before that happened. And then it's just like, you see Jamie standing there and you see like that little kid in him, you know, that little kid who is just hurt and like, doesn't know what to do. And, and then you see Roy just cross the room without a hesitation and like put his arms around him. And then that moment, it's like, he's doing the thing that a dad, a good dad would have done for Jamie, you know, in that moment when he was like upset and struggling, he's stepping in to, to take care of him. And, oh, like going back to all those, those conversations we had around toxic masculinity and toxic male relationships, like this was such a beautiful example of like healthy male relationships you know yeah seriously i mean so many of the signs of healthy masculinity right very grounded you know very not trying to fix it right just simply rooted you know didn't even say any words right it wasn't trying to like you know like fill up the space but simply was just like i'm here and i'm here in like my presence right and the contrast between that and the toxic masculinity emanating from his father which just showed a, a a lack of, you know, well, showed aggression, showed bullying, showed masking insecurity with like bombastic, you know, gestures. It was exactly not only just what Jamie needed, but potentially what also the whole team needed at that moment, because they were all questioning, like, what are we doing here? Right. And I actually, and this is the thing that was crazy for me was when they lost 5 0, I was like, oh, good. And I was like, why am I saying, oh, good? And it was like, because realistically, <laughs> if you were playing that top of a team, like you'd probably get slaughtered. Like you'd probably lose really bad, you know, especially at Wembley when they're trying to win like the semifinals. So that was realistic. And I was like, oh, that's great because they could have done the easy route and made it like the Mighty Ducks or some other thing where they beat the, you know, the upset team. But it was like, no, this is actually an opportunity for us to sit in the loss and still heal and progress yeah during this and that's what i love about this type of writing is like they don't make it easy on themselves yeah and to your point you know 
there's still an element of hope even after they lose, right? Mm -hmm. And to your point about the writing, like it's taking the individual, you know, stories and moods that people are feeling and like separating it from the fate of the team. And so, you know, we talk about this, right? Like separating ourselves from our stories. And so as soon as we can do that, then like that loss, yeah, it's, it's devastating and all of that, but it doesn't take away the hope that we have for, you know, getting up and trying again and whatever. And so, yeah, I think that that was really beautifully written. Also the song that's playing in that moment when Roy goes to hug Jamie is, um, it's called Beware of Darkness by George Harrison. And it's such a beautiful song. And the the lyrics, once again, the lyrics are, beware of falling swingers dropping all around you, the pain that often mingles in your fingertips, beware of darkness. And so it was just like a, a really nice like match where they where they brought the, the music together again. And it just adds so much into that moment, I think. But we see that that whole, you know, scene between Jamie and his dad kind of triggers Ted. And so this has been kind of the overarching thing also is Ted's relationship to his father since season one. We've heard bits and pieces about, you know, we know in the episode with the darts that his dad died when he was 16. And then we have heard like little bits here and there, but we don't really know what happened until this moment. And Ted's confession, you know, to Dr. Sharon. And so I think that's another really interesting relationship. So going back to Sharon and Ted and this idea of vulnerability, right? So uh, <laughs> we've already talked about how Sharon didn't know how to ride a bike in real life. Sarah Niles didn't know how to ride a bike in real life. And so she learned on this show. And so <laughs> to see her actually <laughs> get hit by a car was really ironic. I love the song that's playing. Um, it's called Witness uh, by Roots Manuva. And, and so we see her in her scene to begin with, she's talking to her own therapist, right? And I thought that that was really uh, powerful too, because we see that in Ted, she has a bit of a mirror <laughs> to herself and kind of, she talks about how he's driving her crazy. He doesn't open up. He protects himself and refuses to be vulnerable and he uses his humor. And her therapist says, yeah, you know, you, he uses his humor, but you use your intelligence. And so you need to let your guard down and meet him halfway. And so for people who don't know, you know, there are actually therapists out there who specialize in treating other therapists. And so that's kind of what we got a glimpse at here. But I'm curious, like what came up for you around that? So... I don't know if I've seen many shows or movies where you see the therapist complaining about the client. I don't know if I've ever seen that, right? Unless I've watched like a movie on therapy, which I can't recall now what that was. So just first that glimpse, and that was the first time you actually see Dr. Sharon like complaining, you know, and actually emoting more emotions. So she's showing like this certain level of frustration, right? And then talk about like what we said earlier about like, you know, emotions have impact and they have momentum, positive as well as negative. So like Ted is clearly eating up uh, stuff in her brain, is uh, occupying her brain so that even when she's riding her bike, she's a little angry. 
she's just like, move your dog. Your dog doesn't like the sweater. Like, you know, like, so that negativity is already impacting her, which probably then results in her. I mean, I don't know if she was paying attention or not, but just results in like this thing happening. And it was like, oh no, of all the things, now this. And then coach Ted Lasso was like calling her. So what I found fascinating about that whole process was this is the first glimpse into like Ted as well as us getting to know Dr. Sharon and seeing her in a vulnerable position, especially when he like goes and visits her at the hospital and she swears as soon as she sees him. That was hilarious. You know, like I've never seen her swear. I've never seen her like be that angry. Like, and it's just like, oh man, like she really does not like this dude. This dude is really, yeah. Well, and to your point about how much headspace she's, he's taken up for her. The fact that when she was kind of loopy and she left him all those voice notes. Oh my gosh. 32? Yeah. And, and then, and then she says, oh, well, I, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean what I said. And he's like, well, you kind of meant it, you know? And cause there's always a little bit of truth in that. Right. Like, and so, yeah, like he's definitely taken up a lot of space for her to be like, even in that state, be like, I need to tell him something, you know? So was that what happened? That seems excessive. 32 messages. So she left him 32 voicemail messages after never leaving him one? Not voicemail, like voice notes. So, you know, like when you text someone, you can just leave a voice note instead. Okay. She says, oh, I thought those deleted themselves. Oh, so she's using those notes as she's, okay, as she has her concussion. God. Yeah. Yeah. And so then, yeah, so so he knows that she's at the hospital. He goes to pick her up. One thing that was interesting is there's been a lot of people in the Ted Lasso groups talking about how they think that the doctor who is treating Dr. Sharon might actually be Roy's sister. After the scene, we cut to Roy in the, the meeting with the teacher and he says, oh, my sister can't be here. She works in the emergency room. And if you look at her, she's got the crazy eyebrows like Roy does. So it's entirely possible. But yeah, so Ted Ted goes and picks Sharon up and bring you know walks her home, and then we get an even bigger glimpse at her life, right? Because now we see it through Ted's eyes, see her place through Ted's eyes, and so we see all the wine bottles and. Even when she asks him if he wants anything, all she has is water and wine to offer. Yep. The corporate housing, like like you can feel that she hasn't really moved in. You know, she probably didn't even know how long she was going to be there. So there's just like this sense of loneliness. Yeah. And, and a little bit of like depression, right? And so then he picks up the books. So the books here, we've got two books in her house. Um, the first one was The Middle Passage. From Misery to Meaning in Midlife by James Hollis. And so I looked up what that one was, and it says it's a Jungian-based book on finding meaning in this crazy world that we inhabit. And then the other one was You Matter by Poetry of Diman. And so this, like his poems are about um, learning to love yourself should be your number one goal in life, and that it's just as important to give yourself the love and kindness that you give others. Oh, and then at the same time, it's also a friendly reminder that it doesn't happen overnight and that there will be bumps in the road. And so she's clearly like looking for something, right, to um, make her kind of feel better. But that was really interesting to see kind of 
that, you know, she has like that mask that we've talked about. She walks around with that mask on at work and then she's living a whole different life. And, you know, it, it made me also think about this week, you know, we heard about the, the tragic passing of Twitch and just how you never know what is happening for other people. Like, you know, you could have people who, who come across as like really strong and happy and whatever. And not to say that Sharon comes across as being particularly happy, but as a therapist, like she comes across as being, you know, grounded and, and whatnot. And to then see that she's actually kind of struggling. And so it just goes to that space of not making assumptions. And, you know, and Ted has made a lot of assumptions about her since the beginning. So, yeah. And, and you also have to take in consideration, like, wow, work must be really important to her because it doesn't seem like she has anything else right now, or at least as she moved here, you know, what type of community did she leave? And they only show her talking to her therapist. So who else is she connecting with? She's not hanging out with the team mm-hmm. and she probably doesn't feel she can. Right. So it's just like, she literally do therapy for the team the whole day and then goes home and just watches TV like and drinks wine. Man, no wonder you're reading those books. Like Yeah. That's that's a yeah. that's a tough existence. And it makes me also then think about like also the danger of when you don't have other outlets, right? Like her outlet is biking. That's her like one outlet. And then it also just makes me think of like Nate, where like Nate probably doesn't have another outlet either. Like Yeah. Work is such an identity for both of them, you know, heck, maybe even for Ted as well, that there is, yeah, wh- where do you blow off steam? Where where do you, yeah, where do you have another place where you can lean on that is not work-related? Yeah, and I love what you just said about, um, you know, the, the idea of loneliness, though. Uh, the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, you know, a few years ago, he published a book on loneliness and it's one of the best books I've ever read. And we'll, we'll link to it as well um, in the show notes, you know, in his first term as surgeon general, he did a listening tour all over the country trying to figure out like what, you know, what would be kind of the thing that he focused on and what he recognized was that, and he termed it an epidemic of loneliness across the country, you know, and this goes back to like, you know, as, as human beings were hardwired for connection, and so when we aren't able to feel that sense of connection, the loneliness that emerges and the, the damage that that can do to us is really, really stunning. You know, when I say stunning, like not in a good way, but like it's, it's very impactful. Yeah. So I think like it's, it's really something to see, you know, people who you think are one way actually suffering through something in their own lives. Yeah, it makes me uh, uh, think of, I had to look this up, called um, that book Bowling Alone, which came out in 2000, the collapse and the revival of the American community. Mm. And the whole book just talks about the fact that there's not many community spaces left. You know, there used to be it through like, I guess, like religion and like churches and things like that. And there used to be a lot more bowling leagues and things like that. But a lot of those things have kind of dissipated with, you know, the proliferation of like social media. So people can now connect with anyone anywhere around the world, but then also they feel the loneliest they've ever felt at the same time. 
And it's ironic as well, because it's funny. It's like, I, I always talk about this analogy of like, you know, you have someone at home that pulls up on Instagram and sees all their friends at a party, you know, at a club and they're all posting about how much fun they're having, you know, so they feel lonely. And then, then you've seen people actually at the club or wherever the bar or whatever it is. And they're all posting about how much fun they're having, but they all feel alone being surrounded by people. Right. So then no, everyone is trying to communicate to everyone else. They aren't alone when everyone feels so lonely. Right. It's so true. It's so true. And, you know, it's funny, like even when I think back on some of the relationships I've been in, those have been some of the loneliest times I've experienced is like in the actual relationship, you know. And so, yeah, loneliness can creep up anywhere. Right. I mean, sometimes I don't know if you've ever been at uh, like I like sometimes to just go eat by myself. Right. And I enjoy it, you know, and and then I'll look over to a couple and a couple is literally both looking at their phone. Mm -hmm. They're right next to each other. And I'm like, man, I wish I was in a relationship so I could actually connect. But but apparently this is not happening. (laughs) I was just going to say the other thing that's interesting is the cultural aspect. Right. So like in the West, there's such a the West has promoted the idea of a nuclear family for such a long like for decades, you know, probably longer than that. So centuries. But like when you look at other cultures, though, like there's so much about like those family ties and those friendship ties and to your point about community, right? And so, like, for example, in India, where my family comes from, you know, when a woman gives birth, she goes back to her parents' house, usually, or her family's house for up to like 40 days. And a big part of that is because of like postpartum depression and things like that. It's it's surrounding her with people with community to help her get through those first days and like have the support and things like that. And you think about here where like you don't have anybody, you're, you're kind of trying to muddle your way through it on your own. And I shouldn't say you don't have anybody. Like I, I think in some ways things have changed a little bit because we see people like trying to create more community. But I think that there are major, major pockets around this country where that just you know, that's not the way it's done. And that's, you know, like kids turn 18, they leave the house, they go do their own thing. And that's, you know, that's how it is. It's very individualistic. Yeah. And that plays such a, like a a vital role. I think I've talked about this before. I made a video a while back around the difference between relationship love and friendship love. And what I love about this show is it celebrates friendship love as much, if not more, than relationship love, you know? Mm -hmm. And that you don't, you're not, like at at this point in the show, as I'm watching this, I'm not like, man, you know what Ted needs? He needs, uh, you know, someone to like be with, right? Like that's, I'm not thinking about that at this point. Yeah. And I think a lot of shows in the past have done that as like oh well you know he's the main character so he has to have a love interest and that's how we're going to play this out and you know that's just like the cookie cutter way of writing it and this is what i love about the writers they're like nope we're not going to do any of that and we're going to celebrate you know those friendship loves like roy hugging jamie right or beard with ted like those or or keely with rebecca like those are just important if not more Yeah, definitely. And so I think like the turning point we see in Ted and Sharon's uh, relationship 
So Ted becomes her community in a way, right? He starts calling her and tells her, I'm going to call you every 20 minutes to check on you because you need to make sure, you know, you don't fall asleep. And, and she finally like takes the, her therapist's advice and, mm-hmm. and takes down a little wall, right? And says, you know, I was really scared today. And when he tries to kind of just like joke about it, she says, I don't need a pep talk. I just wanted to tell you how I was feeling and I'm glad I did. And this was such a beautiful example of vulnerability without having to share your entire life story, right? So uh, Brene Brown talks about this all the time that, you know, like, and, and I feel like even in my work, like leaders feel like they can't be vulnerable because they're and, and the thing I hear all the time is like, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to tell everybody at work about, you know, what's happening in my life and my whole life story and this and that. And you don't have to, like, that's the whole thing. You don't have to. Yeah like have this verbal diarrhea of everything in your life um, in order to create connection, right? But it's about being honest about emotions and feelings. And and that kind of opens the door and it creates this space for the other person so that they can then share the same. And I, I really think that it's because she shared that, that when Ted ran out of the locker room, he finally felt comfortable enough to share his story and be vulnerable with her because she had created that space to do that, right? Absolutely. And to connect on that level. He even used the language. Mm-hmm. Which language? Where he was just like, I just wanted to tell you. He just reflected literally back to her. Like talk about like, yeah, you know, attunement and play, right? Like he literally was playing in a vulnerable way by just mirroring what she had done for him, but done, yeah, done recently. Yeah. And we saw the same thing with Ted creating the space when he shared with um, the guys in the, you know, before they went out to the match that, Hey, you know, I didn't have food poisoning. I had panic attack. And again, it just opens up this door and then everybody has something to share. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that was a, a really lovely example of how do we create psychological safety? Right. And so it's your leader taking the lead to create this space that is brave and letting people know like, hey, I'm not perfect. This is what happened to me. This is what I'm struggling with in this moment. And people then feeling like, oh, okay, I can do the same. Now, this one we will see come back later. I won't say more than that. And and we'll talk about it when I have a feeling yeah. <laughs> already about a few different things, but I will also leave, not touch it. But I think going back to the whole idea of, okay, how does a leader actually be vulnerable is I think a lot of people don't understand how to be vulnerable without word vomit, right? Without like Mm -hmm. saying everything, because that's what they typically do with their friends. So this idea of like, how do I be both professional, but vulnerable with my staff is harder, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because you know, I remember coaching someone that had, we walked through the Brene Brown book together mm-hmm. and he was a horrible, he was a horrible leader. Like he just was not doing that well. And then we were like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's go through the Brene Brown book, right? We're going to do that as a way of understanding how you can be much more of a vulnerable leader. And then he just started telling them everything. <laughs> He's like, I'm a horrible boss. Like, I'm not very good. I don't know what I'm doing half the time. Like he just was it just went from one to, and then all of a sudden they started being his like therapist. And I was like, dude, like he took it to the opposite extreme. 
Yeah. So I think what what is valuable is is for us to like lay out for those leaders like what does that vulnerability actually look like? Mm-hmm. You know, in a day to day sense, what would you actually tell a leader to do? where they are both vulnerable yet still professional. Yeah. So to me, again, I think it's about um, connecting on an emotional and feelings level, right? So for example, when we had um, in my previous workplace, we had, um, you know, an entire division got shut down and we had a lot of very senior leaders not even acknowledge it. And the staff was traumatized. And so in those moments, like with my team being able to say, or even like with January 6th, I remember that one in particular with my team. I came into work the next day and I I called like a, a check-in and I said, look, I am scared and I'm angry. I just want to check in with all of you. Like, how is everyone feeling? And just being honest about like what I was feeling in that moment. And so same thing with the division shutting down. Like, being honest about as a leader to say like, Hey, you know, this took me by surprise, or I am really upset that this is happening and not making it seem like we have to shove it down and deal with it ourselves, but rather creating that sense of community around a shared experience. Like to me, that's how you share your vulnerability and actually connect on that level. That's going to allow other people to feel like, okay, yeah, I can share how I'm feeling about this in this moment. I also think about, I work with a lot of tech companies and a lot of engineering teams with, you know, managers that were moved up because they were good engineers, but maybe not the strongest leaders. And, you know, many of them are like, I've never communicated my emotions, let alone to my friends, you know, than to my staff. So just trying to figure out how to communicate that in a professional way, I see them struggling with that but you do give a really good point of you just simply you have to let go of the perfection you almost have to play with the vulnerability and just be like i don't know what's happening right now i don't know what's going on but this is how i'm feeling about this which is really hard for people especially if they've never done that with their staff before yeah and especially if you're a high performer or if you you know as a leader we often believe like we have to have all the answers we can't say i don't know we can't like let anyone, you know, think that we don't know what's happening or what's going on. And so we double down on everything. We try to be perfect. And it ultimately, it's not sustainable. So ultimately, it comes back to bite you in the butt somehow. And so, you know, to the extent that we can take that mask off for a little while so people can see in, uh, it just helps others take the mask off too. Right. You know? But talk about psychological safety. You also have to trust that those people will use that information in a responsible way. Yes. And that's what makes me nervous because I don't know what's happening next, but I have a feeling that some of the things shared by Mr. Lasso and other people might come back. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk for a few minutes, um, just, uh, I know I kind of started this earlier, but I want to come back to Roy and Phoebe and just this idea of how we influence people without realizing it. Right. And so I thought this was such an adorable storyline and to see Roy like 
clueless about the fact that he's the reason that Phoebe is swearing as much as she is. I thought was just, it was so cute. And that, that back and forth with the teacher, I thought was really funny. But that conversation in the car, oh my gosh, just so lovely. Well, first of all, I, I love how she asks him for ice cream and he says, fuck no. And then, <laughs> and then he takes her out for ice cream. Exactly. Exactly. But it just, it's an interesting thing how they wrote it. Like, you know, the fact that he's honest about like, I can't stop doing it, but you can, you know? So this is one of those do as I say, not as I do moments. And he explains it to her, I thought in a really beautiful way, but it's that vulnerability again here that sometimes I get concerned that I've been infecting you with the worst parts of me. And, oh, I just thought that was so beautiful. And and she just, you know, is up for the challenge. And right away, she's, you know, you teach me great things. I stand up to bullies and referees, and I can do it without swearing. And then she says, you know, I'm as good as the best you. And I just, I thought that that was so beautiful. It's such good writing. And also, it's more realistic than, you know, the... TGI Fridays type thing where, you know, usually they have a conversation. You're like, well, I'll be better. And then you'll do better. And then, and then it's all like happy. I love that. They both were like, no, this is who I am. This is who I am. And, and there were, there was boundary setting at the same time that they're, you know, trying to both set expectations of how to go forward. And I thought that was like a mastermind in, in parenting 101 in the way of like, again, even though he's like the surrogate father or surrogate role model to her, he's willing to to be vulnerable at that time and being like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I'm trying to figure this out myself. And I think a lot of parents a lot of times feel as if they have to, again, be perfect. And that's not what your kid needs, right? Like your your kid wants to see you and wants to experiencing you, you know, and recognizing that you recognize your own flaws. You know, I think that's a huge part of it. I think there's a lot of anxiety in a lot of kids because they see their parents trying to be perfect and not identify, not being vulnerable and not showing, you know, emotions about their flaws. And then it starts to permeate into their kids. Yeah, for sure. And I thought it was interesting that he says, you know, that he never learned how to like be a parent to a child or be a parent or whatever, right? And I don't remember what the exact words were. But if you think about it, like all new parents are in that space, right? Yeah. Like no one's really teaching yeah. you in that way. But you see him being so thoughtful in his approach and really trying to like figure this out. And so I think like by the time we see that moment with Jamie, it's like he's gone through this like period of thinking about this, thinking about how to show up as the best version of that self of himself in those moments. And so it's almost like it was just a reaction in that moment because he saw someone hurting. And like I said, you know, almost like the little kid version of Jamie, you know, and he just felt this overwhelming need to like go and, and care for him. And so yeah. You know, I think it's no surprise that they kind of tied those two storylines together because it really shows him coming into how or figuring out how he wants to like be in that role for people. And talk about the impact, right? Phoebe has on Roy who then has on Jamie and the team. 
And the team. Because he's modeling for the team, right? Like, So it's like Phoebe's influenced the team. Like that's fascinating. And then you ask such a really interesting question. I'm going to ask myself more and more, you know, what does it look like when you show up as your best self? You know, what does that, what does that mean? You know, and how does that feel also when other people see the best in you? Like, ooh, so good. And what are the ripple effects, right? So what are the ripple effects? Yeah. Like in the first season, we saw Ted showing up as himself and the influence that he had just by being who he was, right? And he changed the entire team, like little by little by little um, until, you know, we started season two and <laughs> and the team is as solid as it can be, even though they are terrible at playing, but like... But he's changed, you know, and that was all just by him being himself. And so, yeah, so this idea that we can influence people without even realizing that that's what we're doing, um, I think is a really big one. And so, I mean, you already see Ted Lasso's impact with the haircut bay and how they all surrounded and cheer. They're cheering during his haircut. Okay. Yeah. And then also Sam with the three dots, right? They're cheering for Sam yes. during. Like, it's amazing to watch that. And all of that work was done in season one. And now it's paying off in season two. Yeah. And that haircut scene was just like beautifully choreographed. And again, the the music, right? So the beginning is Arturo Sandoval's La Virgen de la Macarena. And the second song that goes through the rest of the cut is uh, Mahalia Jackson's Down by the Riverside. And like, and I loved that they incorporated Will into like this ritual of haircutting, right? Because he's holding all the clippers. To your point, like it was such a, a really great reminder of how this team has come together and how they support each other. And it has such Salt Bay vibes. It's so Salt Bay. Like his face, look at his face the whole time. And then he looks over to the crowd and then they cheer whenever he does any gesture. And just like Salt Bay, some people are like, I don't get it. This guy's just sprinkling salt on this steak, right? The same thing with the haircut guy. You're like, I don't understand what's happening, but apparently it's amazing. Yeah. And there's, there's just so much joy and pleasure, right? Like that's what the whole Bay vibe is about. And so I love that. All right. So the last thing, which we haven't talked about at all, is Sam and Rebecca. Oh, yeah. And so... Yeah. So I know last week when we talked about this, I said that I I like the idea of an older woman being able to um, find a younger man like this um, and have that connection. And I, I still feel that way to the in terms of like, well, obviously there's a, a double standard, right? Like we see men get together with younger women all the time. So all the time. I don't think that should be any different for women going the other way. Right. But having said that, <laughs> looking at this from like that lens of leadership, I have a lot of problems with this because. <laughs> oh, God. I hear the Rebecca in your voice. You're like, I can't do this. I'm, I'm grooming this kid. I get, you know, yes. he's 21 years old. Is, uh, you know. 21. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Um, yeah. But the fact that like she controls his career, like the power differential is just it's off the charts. I mean, I hate this. I hate to be the 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 other side, but I'm like, love is love, you know. First off, when did Sam get gay? 
You know, like when did this dude all of a sudden bust out such strong game? Like up until this point, he has seemed so innocent and pure. And then, and then he has lines like, you know, well, why'd you give me your address for next time? Who is this man? Who <laughs> I know. is this man? I was man? like, that is very presumptuous. Wow. I mean, like, this dude is like, bye-bye, you know? Or even when he takes, you know, when they're on the date and he walks into the, and he's like, can we not see each other again sometime? I'm like, who is this Sam? I have not seen this Sam. And up until this point, I was just like, I don't know if I can see them together. But now I'm like, okay, here we go. You know, and, you know, I I hear you from the leadership development standpoint and the HR standpoint. You're like, no, that is not right. But, you know, from the like fun, like, hey, you know, oh, yeah, they're just having dinner and they're just they're just following, you know, their hearts. I'm like you know, more power to them both. You know what I'm saying? Like that's the, that's the vibe that I, I feel as well. Yeah. From a purely like relationship side, like I, I really love it. And, you know, Sam is only 21, which is crazy to me, but he's super mature and like they've been, you know, corresponding with each other for a while now. And so they clearly have a lot of common, they respect each other. They like each other textual chemistry they have a lot of textual chemistry yeah as jamie said jamie said that he's like what if you only just had textual chemistry and you're like oh i've never heard of that (laughs) i i have gone on dates where like the texting was amazing and then when you meet him you're like i don't know what's happening it just doesn't have the same vibe i love that term though i had not heard that until the show so Yeah. yeah so yeah so on that purely like relationship side yeah I'd like I'd love to see what happens but I think from the other standpoint it is definitely problematic and also you know when you think about what happens when this gets out to into the public what happens when the team finds out you know like I feel like that could cause a lot of issues for Sam in terms of like you know you look at the team dynamic right now and if one of them is dating the owner of the team you know it's going to potential there's potential for fractures in that like tight-knit group that they've created right yeah and also for rebecca i mean we remember rebecca has not openly dated anyone in the public and then for this to get out so like there are a building of many skeletons in the closet at afc richmond that i concern are concerning and something that you just said what what came up for me was that She's doing the thing that she accused Rupert of doing this whole time, right? Like the fact that he was always going after younger women and things like that. And now she's in that position with a younger man. So that that's actually kind of interesting. I wouldn't even think about that because visually it looks the same, but if I was the defender, I'd be like, no, but it's different. She's using BAMF or whatever, whatever thing she's using. She's using banter. You know, yeah. Banter. You know, and it's different. She like built a relationship, but you're right from, from a visual standpoint. And especially if Trim Crim from The Independent, if he got hold of this story, oh my goodness. So, yeah, right. Like, I think it could really blow up. It could, it could destroy the team. But I love that dinner scene. Like, you can tell that they're thoroughly enjoying each other's company and the music. So, that one, um, it's set against Rex Orange County's. Loving is easy. And that's such a great song. <laughs> like, 
And I think it just adds to the whole like mood of what we're seeing happening between the two of them. And so, yeah. So I don't know. I I think that that's just a really interesting storyline. I agree. He's definitely walked into some real confidence now, you know, to where he's not backing down and. And he's sending messages to her through the TV, through interviews. So like that was very strategic on his point. Mm-hmm. And then to be outside of her house, I was like, who is this man? Where is this confidence on the pitch? We need that confidence on the pitch <laughs> so they can win some games. Yeah. But, you know, I think we did see his confidence start to come up in at the beginning of season two, right? Like when Jamie comes back and, and, oh, yeah. and, and he tells him, like, things are different now, right? Because he's been... Uh, able to step into that role of leadership. And I think that as soon as he started doing that, as soon as first season when Ted did the whole goldfish thing, you know, like I think that that really started shifting things for him and he started showing up in a a different way. And so, but we haven't seen it in the, the romantic setting. And so it's definitely fun to see it in that space. And so. One question for you, would, would there be, would there be any other player on the team that also you would or you would not have a problem with her dating or or all of them no no one on the team i mean again from that leadership standpoint i don't think she should be dating anyone that works for her not not on the team not on the staff like she's the owner of the team look i don't want to get in the way of love either but but when it comes to like you holding power over a person, uh, it's a problem. You know? It's true. It's true. So, yeah, it was so funny. I remember uh, we used to have these um, all hands meetings um, when people would come back from overseas and it was like the one chance for everyone to be in the room together. And so there were some policy discussions happening around like relationships in the field and like with like interpreter staff and things like that. And this one guy got up in the middle of all of it. And he's like, you can't regulate love. And like, it was, everyone was like, what? And so that just kind of reminds me of that. But I mean, it's, it's real, right? Because you spend 2000 to 2,500 hours a year at work. Like it's inevitable. You're probably going to meet somebody, you know, while you're working. And it does make me, I remember when I was, you know, working at my previous job, you know, in the HR department, our HR director had this picture where they were like, these are the people that work for our organization. And here's this huge circle of the 7 billion plus people you can date. You know, you have a whole pool. You have a whole pool over here. You don't need to date someone with, because so many people were dating within the organization. It was causing like rifts, like when they would break up. Like, yeah, I think there was like a manager that was uh, managing a staffer and then they were dating and then they had to break up as she was like firing him. And it was like, oh, yeah, the drama. Yeah, I will say one other thing, and I haven't obviously looked at any of the comments because, you know, I haven't finished the whole season. So, and no spoilers. And I would love to find out if there's any comments around the interracial dating, the fact that he's black and the fact that she's white. And part of the reason why I bring this up is because in a lot of football, like racism is huge, you know, 
when um, England played in the Euro back in, I think, 2020 or sometime around then, Mm -hmm. their black players missed the penalty kicks that would have won them the championship. And then there was a lot of violence towards, you know, people of color. And then the same thing happened during this World Cup that just ended where certain black players, even though, frankly, the whole French team is black and the whole French team is like from other parts of the world. Yeah, when they missed their penalty kicks, they also received a certain amount of like racial slurs and things like that. So I wonder if in the debates, and I don't think this would actually happen just because Ted Lasso fans I have met and conversed with, but I wonder if there is that racial component as well that has come up for people and people have like brought that up. Yeah, I have not seen it anywhere. I've And I've been in these groups a lot. The whole conversation is around the power differential with her being the owner, but I've not seen anything about race come up. I mean, it's not to say I could have missed something, but it hasn't been a big thing. What's interesting about what you just mentioned, though, was with the British soccer team or the British football team, when that happened, there was a premiere or some kind of thing that that Jason Sudeikis was walking the red carpet and he uh, wore a T-shirt that had all the the black players' names on it um, on the red carpet. So, yeah, so I thought that that was actually really classy. Yeah, so I think that's a big step. And then the the last thing about the music, the last two songs, um, we've got Oasis, Don't Look Back in Anger, which is very timely. And we see as Beard, you know, Beard comes out to check on Ted, right, before he leaves. And then he says, like, I, I got to go shake this off. Yeah. <laughs> Ted says bird by bird again. What's bird by bird mean? Remember we talked about it last season. Bird by bird is a book. It's by Anne Lamont, and it's actually for writers. And so a lot of times when you're writing a book, it can feel really overwhelming because you're thinking about the whole big thing. And so she kind of uses this analogy of her brother had this project about birds, and then he waited till the last minute to do it. And it was like really late. And his dad came down and was just like, well, buddy, just do it bird by bird. And so it's this idea that you take it like one little piece at a time. And so... So Ted has referenced that in the past, bird by bird, that that's what they were doing is like one little bit at a time to make the change. But yeah, Beard is Beard is over it. That was pretty comical too when he, when they were on the pitch and um, Ted says, you know, well, it is what it is. And Beard looks at, yeah, it is what it is. And then he turns around to like walk away and like trips over the, like falls over the barrier. Right. But it does also give me a glimpse into Beard of like, where are you going, dude? Like, what's happening? Like, I just got a glimpse that you were on mushrooms the last game. So I'm like, what? <laughs> where are you going? And there's like a preview uh, scene of like episode nine. It just shows Beard in like this pink room. And I'm like, oh, I was like, <laughs> I, wanna, I can't wait to see what's going to happen. I was like, yo, is, does this guy go? get a little nuts as well like it's so interesting to see these glimpses into people's lives outside of work yeah for sure and uh yeah i think beard is getting he's starting to hit his wall so okay well uh, i think that about covers it for this episode um i think we hit on all the main things but there is a lot there is a lot <laughs> there was a lot yeah yeah so thank you so much as always and Uh, Thank you to everyone for listening and sticking with us. And uh, we appreciate you. I appreciate you, Jeff. Thank you so much. And I will see you all in the new year.
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of What Would Ted Lasso Do? If you got any nuggets of Ted Lasso wisdom from this episode, try them out in your life and let us know what happens at WWTLD Podcast on Instagram or on our website, www.wwtldpodcast.com, where you'll also find a full transcript of the show. We love hearing what other TED heads took away from the episode or details or perspectives that we might have missed. And if you do like the show, please subscribe and head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Every rating helps us get our show in front of more listeners. To that end, we'd also ask if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends, loved ones, randos on the street. You get it. Thank you to the team at Podify for producing our show, to Kajal Dabalia for all our visuals and graphics, and to Kenzie Slato for our theme song. And most of all, thank you to all of you for listening. Ted Lasso could simply just be another show to binge watch. Or if we challenge ourselves to consistently ask the question, what would Ted Lasso do? It could change the trajectory of your life. It has for us. So join us again next time as we explore another episode and ask ourselves, what would Ted Lasso do? Ted Lasso.